Guys, quickly, I just wanted to tell you about a new show from our friends at TED that we think you'll enjoy. It's hmm. called The TED Interview, and it's hosted by Chris Anderson, head of TED. You know TED, TED Talks? Yeah. They're cool. You can learn a I've lot. I've heard of them. In each episode, they, TED dive, Talks. they dive deeper into the ideas of the most compelling TED speakers. Season one features a far-ranging lineup, including Robin Steinberg. What if you're wrong about everything? On disrupting America's cash bail system, Islamic scholar Dalia Mugahed on what it feels like to be a Muslim in America right now, and many more. So check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods. Pod Save the World is brought to you by The Great Courses. At a time when we are so focused on our own leadership, it's helpful to learn from those who have risen to the occasion during the most dangerous points in history. The Great Courses Plus has created a brand new course that everyone should check out called How Winston Churchill Changed the World. This is a great class, very engaging, (laughs) highly recommended. Great. You may have seen... Some of the many Churchill movies recently blows it out of the water. Yeah, there's some quotes. Some quotes? There's always some quotes from him. That guy's always talking. <laughs> Won't shut up. More and more people are recognizing him these days, said Sean Spicer. With The Great Courses Plus, you'll have unlimited access to stream how Winston Churchill changed the world or any of their thousands of fascinating lectures. Learn about any topic that interests you from passionate, engaging experts. And as friends of the pod, you can start enjoying it all for free. Woo! For a limited time only, our listeners get a special free month of unlimited access. But to start your free month trial, you must sign up through this special URL today. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crookedworld. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crookedworld. Tell them Winston sent you. (laughs) Welcome back to Pod Save the World, the post-Thanksgiving sort of hate yourself edition. I hope everyone is doing well. You're doing okay back in the office. There's less football on. There's less food to be eaten. It's okay. We'll get over it. Uh, Lots of news to cover that happened over the last week. So it's a two-part show today. First, I checked in with Mike McFall, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia, about what the hell is going on between Russia and Ukraine. Some very scary headlines over the weekend with boats being overtaken and sailors taken captive and shots fired and just unnerving generally. So we talked through all of that. Then Ben Rhodes joins, and we do just a cornucopia of fun issues in the world. Brexit to Saudi Arabia and the potential to actually get a resolution passed to cut off funding for the civil war in Yemen, to the crazy news about Paul Manafort and Julian Assange, to the upcoming G20, and then Latin America and the caravan and how the U.S. is actually at the root of a lot of the political problems in some of the countries represented by people in the caravan so it's a great show one of my favorites i've done in a while and i think you will enjoy it so without further ado here's the interview with mike mcvall mike is the author of a fantastic book on the u.s russia relationship called from cold war to hot peace that i highly recommend and a very close personal friend of the pod mike welcome back yeah thanks for being back It's great to have you. You were the first person I thought of this weekend when I read the news because for the first time in a long time, we saw overt armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, I believe the first time since 2014, when Russian special forces invaded Crimea. The Russians opened fire on a Ukrainian Navy vessel. They rammed a tugboat. They seized three vessels and 23 sailors and closed down access to a shared waterway called the Kerch Strait, which connects the Black Sea to the Sea of Azov, which... I totally knew that before I Googled it this morning. Um, (laughs) Mike, how worried were you when you woke up to this news? And do you think this was a planned event or a tactical interaction that that went south? Well, your second question is a harder question. I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was it planned or just kind of happened? 
you know, I think I and many other people have been watching this conflict simmer, anticipated that at some day there would be a test where Russia is trying to assert its sovereignty over this territory that you just described, right, and over the sea, uh, and claiming this is now Russian territory. And those ships that go through that strait have to abide by their protocols, their alleged protocols. It was pretty dramatic. If you've watched the video, uh, it's a dramatic, you know, they're hitting this boat. Uh, and if you speak Russian like I do, it's it's good practice for all your swear words that you <laughs> learned when you were 20 years old, because uh-huh. these guys are really worked up, the Russians, you know, in this attack mode. And, and so that's what happened there. Uh, I think if you go to the Kremlin, you know, Putin is now testing Ukraine. He's testing NATO. He's testing the West. He's seeing what he can get away with. It's pretty familiar to me. It's the way he operates, right? He prods and, and prods and sees what he can get away with. And so this is the next iteration in that prodding game. Yeah. I was watching some videos this morning. Putin recently inaugurated a $7.5 billion bridge across uh, yeah. the Kerch Strait that now connects Russia and Crimea. The symbolism was so important that Putin himself drove a construction truck across the bridge on the day it opened and gave some remarks. Why is access to these waterways so important to the Russians and to their broader claims to Crimea? Well, you're right about how important that bridge was to Putin. And it's important because it's a direct way to connect from Russia, the Russia, Russian Federation that the world recognizes, and to Crimea. You know, before there was no direct connection between Crimea and the Russian Federation. This bridge provides that. You know, the, uh, before you had to go through Ukraine to get to Crimea. And that's why they now having it, they are asserting for, you know, national security reasons, they have to protect this bridge against potential espionage and sabotage and, and terrorist attacks from Ukrainians. But if you look at the map, uh, you know, your listeners, uh, what you'll see is that you can't get to certain Ukrainian port cities without going through that strait and under that, you know, multi-billion dollar bridge that Putin built. Mm-hmm. And so over the long run, that's going to create real economic problems for Ukraine if they can't have open passage through that strait. Right, because Putin can just park a big tanker there and suddenly it's blocked, right? Right. That's what he did. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's pretty narrow straight. Yeah. And that's what he did that helped to provoke this this crisis. He is clever. So over on the Ukrainian side, the President Poroshenko delivered a speech to, to parliament declaring martial law that apparently starts Wednesday and, and goes for a month. I think he walked that back from two months, which is, I guess, good. Yeah. He also said he had intelligence about Russian preparation for a ground offensive, which is not good. What did you make of Poroshenko's reaction? And do you share the concerns I'm seeing about uh, him calling for martial law? Well, I was surprised by martial law because there was not martial law back when Russia invaded in 2014. Um, At the same time, you know, far be it for me to sit in Palo Alto and judge what the president of Ukraine should do for defending their national security. He's obviously got intelligence that I don't have uh, about that threat. What I thought was good, I actually think yesterday was a good day for Ukrainian democracy, Hmm. uh, in that the president said we needed martial law, you know, and and people thought, well, this is going to threaten the scheduling of the presidential election, which is scheduled for March of next year. And yet, through a deliberative process, they reached a compromise uh, in the parliament yesterday. You know, that's democracy at work, as far as I'm concerned. So I thought it was a good outcome, and I hope that the 
warnings of a Russian military invasion were, you know, just hyperbole. But, you know, I'm not going to judge a guy sitting in Kiev with intelligence that I don't have. Yeah, me either. So let's judge a bunch of bozos in Washington. Um, (laughs) That's closer to home. Much easier. Trump's (laughs) response was typical and frustrating. He did a brief pool spray where he refused to condemn Russia specifically, saying, quote, we do not like what's happening either way, end quote. Ugh. Uh, at the UN, Nikki Haley was tougher, although she's leaving soon. She called Russia's actions a violation of international law and, quote, an arrogant act that the international community must condemn and will never accept. Good. Pompeo condemned the act and called it a dangerous escalation and violation of international law. Curious what you made of the, the U.S. response and what tools you think we have uh, at our disposal to respond beyond, I guess, statements and whatever Trump decides to say at, at, to Putin on the margins of the upcoming G20 summit in Argentina. Well, I mean, reading the words of uh, Ambassador Haley or the words put out under Secretary Pompeo's name, I agree with those statements. Uh, But they're undermined when the president of the United States says something differently. And, uh, you know, this is a familiar pattern now when it comes to Trump and Russia. The, The Trump administration seems to have one policy, but the president himself has another. And it is incredible how consistent he has been and avoiding any criticism of Vladimir Putin. I mean, you know, years and years and years it is now going on. And remember, this is a president that changes his mind and contradicts himself uh, fairly frequently, Mm -hmm. but not when it comes to Putin. And so, you know, the Russian media, of course, picked up on that. They're they're saying, you know, we, we were happy, I think is what Channel One said, with the equivocation of the president that shows that he doesn't really want a crisis here. And I think it's a good lesson for people that, that words matter in diplomacy, as, as you may remember, Tommy, when we used to put out these words at the White House. And mm-hmm. remember all the like, drama people used to have about at what level the statement yeah. was at and whether it was the White House or the State Department? Well, it 400 reply-alls later. What the White yeah. House says. Yeah, it was, a, it was an absolute nightmare uh, <laughs> editing those things until they were ready to go out. You're right. But it matters whether or not it comes from the White House or not. The yeah. whole world and most certainly the Kremlin is looking to see what the president says. And when given the chance to say something really simple, like we honor and defend and uh, the territorial integrity of Ukraine, you know, not that complex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he whiffed. He couldn't say it. He totally whiffed. Um, I just saw a quote from John Bolton saying that Trump and Putin's meeting on the margins of the G20 will be a continuation of the Helsinki summit. So that's not great. That's not what I want. Well, that's the great news. I mean, that's the (laughs) problem. So so it's a great point. Like, I'm not against presidents, Democrats or Republicans, engaging with uh, authoritarian regimes and enemies of the United States. That is something one has to do in order to advance American national interest. The problem with Trump is that he doesn't seem capable of delivering a strong message when it comes to Putin. And we don't need any more continuations of Helsinki. I mean, Helsinki was a complete disaster in that he stood next to Putin and he defended Putin uh, and did not defend our intelligence community. And then just to remind your listeners, that's the that's the summit where he said it would be a great idea to hand me over <laughs> to the Russians. So maybe I take it a little personal, but, uh, you know, so far, President Trump has proved incapable of advancing American national interests when he's next to Vladimir Putin. If the meeting goes forward, I hope it'll be different in Argentina, but we don't need mm-hmm. a continuation of Helsinki. We need something different. Yeah. Well, I'm very glad they didn't hand you over and very glad that the Russians didn't get control of Interpol, which is, I guess, a conversation 
conversation for another day. But seeing that our president never fails to whiff when it comes to Russia, do you think there's a chance that the UN or NATO will be able to take meaningful action that will actually deter Russia in situations like this? Uh, UN is unlikely, of course, because Russia has a veto on the Security Council there. NATO, I think, uh, has made the right statements, and I hope that individual NATO countries will provide more military assistance to Ukraine. And then I think the U.S. Congress should step up. There are several bills already that have been tabled uh, for new sanctions against Russia. That was before the elections. It all got frozen because of the elections. Uh, But if the president proves unable to take more coercive actions, I think the U.S. Congress should should push those bills forward and dare the president to veto them. Yeah, that would be great to see. Final question. It's been four years since Russia uh, annexed Crimea and helped create this rebellion in eastern Ukraine. The issue has dropped from the headlines, but I mean, the fighting has been ongoing between the Russians and the Russian-backed separatists ever since. And according to news reports, 10,000 people have died, 1.7 million have been displaced, millions more need urgent assistance. I mean, there was supposed to have been the Minsk agreement in 2015 that brokered a ceasefire, which has been violated countless times and supposed to resolve this, but none of it's been enacted. What do you think it takes to actually resolve this crisis? Like, what is missing diplomatically? Well, I'm not optimistic because I think Putin sees it in his interest to just keep this thing going. And our instruments of leverage are, are weak. So uh, that's my baseline. Having said that, uh, I referred to these bills that are floating around uh, both on the Senate and congressional side, the House of Representatives side for new sanctions. And I think you have to increase sanctions for you know, lack of momentum on Minsk, right? So there's this notion that we got to wait for them to do something negative in order to increase sanctions. I actually think it's the converse, that continued occupation of eastern Ukraine is the predicate and that should be the trigger for new escalatory sanctions. And you keep doing that, even if Putin doesn't change his behavior, right? There's this long discussion in my world, well, sanctions aren't effective, they're not working, And I think sometimes you just have to have punishment for crimes. Mm -hmm. These are crimes. These are international crimes, including what just happened 48 hours ago. And for crimes, there have to be punishments, even if it doesn't alter Putin's behavior in the short run. Yeah. Mike, I wish you were still sitting in Moscow as the ambassador. This would be... um I feel a little better about what's happening, but thank you for helping explain this to me because, you know, I guess I'm not as nervous as I was when I woke up this weekend and read about, you know, ships shooting at each other, right? That's a good thing. Maybe we walked it back. They walked it back today, but I, you know, Tommy, I think there's a real possibility at some point in the future that this this kind of low-level simmering uh, conflict will become hot and Putin's going to dare us to try to stop it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I'm worried about it. I, I want to be clear. We dodged a bullet, uh, and literally Ukrainians dodged some bullets today a couple of days ago, but this hasn't been resolved. It's not going away. Yeah. Well, now I'm terrified again, so thank you uh, all <laughs> yes, over. Keep terrified, <laughs> and keep, let's keep talking. I appreciate it, man. Thank you again. Okay. Talk yeah, to you soon. Thanks, thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Pod Save the World is brought to you by Simply Safe. If you've been thinking about getting a Simply Safe home security system, but have been waiting for the holidays when all the tech deals come out, you've made a smart move. Because right now, you can get a great deal on Simply Safe for the holidays. It's an amazing deal. They rarely do deals like this, but they're doing it just for our listeners. 
Simply Safe is a great protection for your family and for your home. They never make you sign a contract and there are no hidden fees. And with Simply Safe, around the clock professional monitoring is just $14.99 a month. Love it uses Simply Safe. It's great. It's easy to set up. It's great design. It works like a charm. The dog doesn't His set it up. His home is like Fort Knox. No Fort one has broken Knox. in there. They're getting great reviews from CNET, PC Mag, and Wirecutter. All say Simply Safe is the best security system there is. Protect your home today and get a great deal on home security. Go to simplysafe.com slash crookedworld to get this great special holiday offer. That's simplysafe.com slash crookedworld to get the offer. Make sure to use that URL so they know we sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash crookedworld, simplysafe.com slash crookedworld. Potsy of the World is also brought to you by The New Yorker. The New Yorker, John, is an iconic magazine. I've heard of it. represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, they hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Politics, news, international affairs, climate change, and the environment, popular culture, the arts, science, technology, business, fiction, poetry, food, humor, and we all love those cartoons. The New Yorker gets you interested in topics you never knew you'd find fascinating, like paper jams, fault lines, heirloom beans, and stink bugs. Where do I begin with those topics? They reek. NewYorker.com publishes 50 to 20 news stories each day that aren't available in the print magazine. New Yorker has outstanding writers and contributors like Ronan Farrow. Who? Met him. Who has written Pulitzer Prize winning news on people like Harvey Weinstein, Les Moonves. That uh, guy's always working. He is very good. Gia Tolentino writes cultural criticism. Her work includes a profile of Gloria Allred, a review on the literature about millennials, essays on the ongoing cultural reckoning about sexual assault. And Helen Rosner, a James Beard Award winning food writer, joined The New Yorker as a roving food course in 2018, contributing essays and reported stories on all things gastronomic. Don't wait. Go to newyorker.com slash crookedworld and listeners to this podcast say 50% when they enter the code. That's newyorker.com slash crookedworld. And with a special offer, you'll receive 12 issues for just $6. Plus get the exclusive New Yorker tote bag. You can choose between print, digital, or a combo subscription. Subscribe to New Yorker and read something that means something. That's 12 issues for $6 and a free tote bag when you go to newyorker.com slash crookedworld. And now here's Ben Rhodes. On the line from a beautiful hotel in Houston, Texas, is Ben Rhodes, co-host, pod save the world, friend of the pod, known globally, and uh, my buddy. How you doing? Good, good, Tommy. Are you still there from Thanksgiving stuff? I was in New York. Uh, and I came down here for a book event, I have to say. There were some friends of the pod uh, at my book event last night, as cool. there have been everywhere. So thanks for coming out. And uh, going to see our former president, Barack Obama, tonight here in Houston. That's awesome. I don't know why I thought you would do Thanksgiving in Houston, because you went to Rice. That doesn't make any sense. But hey, here we are. Ben, lots of fun stuff to catch up on. So I'm just going to let rip, if that's cool with you. Yeah, go for it. All right. So... December 11th, looming crisis. A British parliament will vote on Theresa May's Brexit deal. Uh, I read today that she is apparently launching a national campaign to try to persuade the voters and MPs. Uh, but even the Brexit secretary is saying this is going to be a challenge to get her deal passed. Meanwhile, the EU is saying that this is the best deal that the UK is going to get. So you better pass it or else God knows what happens. No one, none of the political prognosticators over in, in Britain seem to know what the hell's going on. Uh, what's your read on the state of Brexit and the stakes of this vote for the UK, for us, the global economy, everyone involved? Yeah, well, it can't be said enough to begin with that the reason she's in this bind is because everybody uh, who led the Brexit campaign essentially lied to the British people about the fact that they could leave the EU and still have some of the benefits of the common market of the EU, not have to pay money uh, as a part of their exit. Somehow they said it would lead to more money for the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. All of those things 
have been proven to be wrong. And, you know, unlike the lies in our own politics, the requirements of Brexit demand that, you know, those lies be revealed, because essentially the EU is never going to agree to the kind of terms that the Brexit campaign put forward. So now May has a bind in that she's got the best deal she could get from the EU. It's not a very good deal for the British people. There's almost no chance that the British Parliament is going to approve her deal. Uh, And so then the question becomes, what does she do next? There's a March deadline to decide what they're going to do about Brexit. Without any deal, if they go forward and leaving the European Union, there's just massive uncertainty and economic shocks that could come with that because they'll essentially lose everything that they have under the current arrangement with nothing in place. Right. And there's actually like medicine being stockpiled in the UK for this and food because they don't know if they'd be able to get those things uh, in the aftermath of what is called a hard Brexit. I think, Tommy, the growing sense in the UK is there might need to be a second vote on this. Uh, They call it a people's vote, essentially, on whatever the terms are to leave Brexit and then potentially on whether Brexit should go forward at all. So the the political reality is no deal seems to be good enough to make it through the British Parliament. And then they're going to be faced with this question of revisiting Brexit in the first place or potentially being left with the worst of all worlds, which is a hard Brexit. Oof, Jesus. This does feel like something that could uh, royal already kind of sensitive markets at the moment, no? Yeah, no, absolutely. And London is obviously like a center of global finance, and the British economy would suffer enormously in a hard Brexit, and there'd be reverberations. You know, one of the things I think gets underappreciated is any number of economic shocks are there on the horizon in the global economy. Mm -hmm. And you know, any one of those could trigger, you know, the potential for a global slowdown or recession here in the U.S. So this is one of those things to watch. Yeah. I mean, God, remember how much time we spent worrying about Greece's economy? Imagine uh, the U.K. Multiply that by a few thousand times. And uh, that's the concern here. But the U.K. isn't the only European country dealing with a bunch of turmoil. Over the weekend, thousands of protesters known as Yellow Jackets protested gas tax increases across France. Uh, So far, President Macron has refused to walk back the gas tax hike, saying that that short-term pain is needed to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels. You know, the mood music here is that France is a very high-tax country. Gas is really expensive, and there's this broader class-based anger. But I raise it because... It does sort of painfully show the major political challenges world leaders face when they try to take meaningful steps to deal with climate change. And you and I haven't talked since the Trump administration tried to bury their recent climate report. So I was wondering what you thought about that report, the global political implications and and really national security implications. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, got to give it to the French, the Yellow Jackets, they they do protest with a certain amount of style. They do. Um, But, I, you know, it is a sign, you know, in the in some of the accompanying information with the climate report, what is also clear is that none of the major economies are meeting their emissions reductions targets. So even the ambition in the Paris Agreement uh, is proving difficult for the major economies to reach. And that's a lot harder you know, when the U.S. is you know, willfully leaving Paris and kind of reducing our own efforts to meet our commitments. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the basis for the Paris Agreement was that everybody's got to do this together and everybody's got to take hard choices together. And it's that much harder for an individual political leader to do the difficult things necessary to reduce emissions and deal with the climate crisis if there's not a sense that the U.S. and China and India and and others are doing this as well. So it's both, I think, a signal of how difficult it is to pursue policies like a gas tax 
um, it's even that much more difficult if you're doing this in isolation. At a certain point, though, uh, everybody does have to get in this together because as that report highlights, the impacts for our economy and our society are profound. But when you magnify that around the world, uh, if you think the current refugee crisis is bad, the potentially hundreds of millions of climate refugees that we could be facing in the next couple of generations, the conflicts, you know, the Syrian civil war, for instance, and many researchers believe that uh, climate change droughts contributed to the fighting in that conflict. You could see similar conflicts in, in the most vulnerable parts of the world, in Africa and the Middle East and Asia. So it's hard to show political will, but uh, uh, tragically, it's necessary. Yeah. Do you think it helps when the President of the United States says, I don't believe it? Yeah, it's not the most, <laughs> not the most like, helpful thing. Unbelievable. I mean, we had to, in the Obama years, you know, just to get China and India in on the deal, it took an American president kind of putting all of his diplomatic focus on this. Now, when you have a president of the United States saying he doesn't believe in climate change, you're kind of giving a pass to, you know, ironically, Trump always says he wants countries to do more. We want China and India to do more to fight climate change. He's giving those countries a pass by what he's saying. Yeah, it is truly infuriating. A couple of big updates on Saudi Arabia that I guess are, are related. The first reports that the White House is refusing to allow CIA Director Gina Haspel to brief the Senate about Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Uh, instead, they want to send Secretaries Pompeo and Mattis, which makes no sense. Uh, Haspel has been running point on dealing with the Turks, dealing with the Saudis, collecting information. She's the obvious person to brief them. This is an intel question. This decision comes after a bunch of senators went on the record contradicting Trump's statement about Mohammed bin Salman's involvement in Khashoggi's murder. Second, Senator Bob Corker says he expects the Senate to vote this week on a resolution to end our involvement in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. This is actually a big shift for Corker and why I think the two may be related because he seems pretty fed up. Do you think there's a chance that Congress can get done a resolution of some sort to cut off military support to the Saudis that they're using in Yemen? Yeah, I think uh, the Senate could pass this resolution this week. Uh, it got 44 votes the last time it came up. Corker and some others have indicated they're willing to shift. So you could have a resolution passing the Senate uh, calling for an end to U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen. It'd be a huge deal. Um, it'd be a, a rebuke of the administration. It'd be a message to the Saudis. Uh, and their allies in the UAE, that uh, the opinion of the United States has shifted. Hopefully, it could bring about an end of the fighting so humanitarian assistance can get into Yemen, where you know millions and millions of people are at risk of famine. It's unlikely to pass the House with the current leadership, mm -hmm. but it could be taken up in the next session by a Democratic House, and you could see the beginning of an effort by Congress to say that this blank check to Saudi Arabia is unsustainable. Uh, I think you make the bright point about Gina Haspel, you know, unlike the State Department, uh, the CIA, the Director of National Intelligence are supposed to be able to appear before Congress and kind of offer the depoliticized, unvarnished view of the intelligence community, which uh, suggests, you know, if reporting is right, that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for this. They're kind of not subtle in their effort to cover this up by mm -hmm. having her not go. I mean, Tommy, can you imagine if there was a comparable global event in our administration and we had instructed John Brennan not to appear before Congress to share his findings? The articles of impeachment would be in the mail by now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you saw this, Ben, because I think it just happened. But Sarah Sanders brief today, which is notable because it's like the first one she's done in a month, which just blows my mind that they don't brief the press anymore. But yeah. uh, she had John Bolton come 
ostensibly to preview the G20 summit this weekend in Argentina. And he was asked whether he'd listened to the tape of Khashoggi being murdered. And he said basically, no, why would I listen to the tape? It's in Arabic. Yeah, well, there are these things in the U.S. government, these capabilities called translators. Um, so Such an I think asshole. the National Security Advisor uh, would be able to get their hands on someone who could translate Arabic to English. Yeah. Um, not that you need much translation to understand an audio tape of a brutal murder. Uh, I think it shows the base cynicism of this administration that they don't even care to examine the evidence. Yep. They basically made a decision to absolve Mohammed bin Salman. There's a pretty chilling article too, Tommy, that David Ignatius just posted mm-hmm. that details how the kind of Game of Thrones mentality in the Saudi royal family from MBS contributed to the Khashoggi murder, how he had attempted to render people uh, to Saudi Arabia in the past, and and very importantly notes that there's this meeting that Jared Kushner had with MBS late last year that seemed to come right before the crackdown on the Ritz and this effort to start to detain dissidents abroad, detain women's rights advocates at home. I think, once again, people need to be looking at what the hell Jared Kushner was talking to MBS about, what kind of deals he might have made, what kind of money might have gone into his property at 666 Fifth Avenue from Saudi Arabia. So, like, a lot of questions remain unanswered here. But the easiest question to answer might be what the Arabic translation of the audio tape is that's sitting on John Bolton's desk. Yeah, I just, you know, this is the the serious version of Pot Save America sometimes, but we can't stress enough what an asshole John Bolton is. I mean, the guy is just more comfortable manipulating intelligence that takes us into a rock, and he won't listen to an audio tape that would tell him definitively what happened in that room that day. I get, if you don't want to listen to something because it's horrific and you don't want it to haunt you for the rest of your life, I get that. That's okay. That's understandable. But the way these guys are just covering this thing up on behalf of MBS is disgraceful. Yeah. And it's just a total side note here, Tommy. You were in the White House press office for a period of time. I mean, what percentage of your job was preparing for that press briefing? Oh. Because my question is, like, what the hell are these people doing uh, in the absence of a press briefing? Like, what, what do they do in the White House press office all day? I think, in yeah, like, we would wake up in the morning, figure out what was in the news, prepare guidance. The, for us, national security side was prepared with the NFC staff, was cleared with agencies. Like, hundreds of people saw this stuff before it was ever spoken. I think all that time is just them chasing down Trump tweets. Like, I honestly did. Yeah. Bunch of bozos. Positive the World is brought to you by ExpressVPN. There is a battle going on with the future of the internet and your right to privacy. Big corporations like ISPs and ad networks are getting rich from selling your data, and Congress has completely failed to save net neutrality or protect your privacy online. Now, internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon are free to restrict websites, spy on your online activity, or sell your browsing history to advertisers. I don't want my internet browsing to be tracked and sold. That's why I use ExpressVPN. With one click, ExpressVPN shields my online activity from internet and mobile providers as well as hackers and spies. ExpressVPN is easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your stuff, ExpressVPN is the solution. 
To take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com slash crookedworld. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash crookedworld for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash crookedworld to learn more. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Bumbas. New sponsor. Bumbas. They're the most comfortable sock in the history of feet. That's what it says right here. In the history of feet. In the history of feet. That's They've very exciting. re-engineered socks with comfort innovations that add up to one way more comfortable pair of socks. Two years of R&D, John. That's more than the current iPhone. I don't know that to be true. It's a lot they of put, R&D, though. They put that much R&D into these socks? You should buy them, then. Yeah. They have arch support systems. They have a cushioned footbed. They have stay-up technology. 133 tension levels were tested to find the perfect tension to keep that sock up there. They have a seamless toe. That dumb bump on your toe is now gone. <laughs> Out of here. They have super They're solving socks. all sorts of problems. Yeah, problems you didn't know you had. One pair sold equals one pair is donated. Socks are the most requested item in homeless shelters, but you can't donate you socks. That's why Bumbas donates one brand new sock for every pair they sell. That's pretty That's cool. That's very nice of them. To date, they sold and donated over 9 million pairs. That's awesome. So these things are engineered for comfort. It's a great company that's doing good every time you purchase a pair of socks. We highly recommend them and, and... Pod Save the World listeners get 20% off their first order. Pretty good. Fantastic. If you go to bumbas.com slash PSTW, that's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash PSTW, you'll get your first pair and you'll feel like you're walking on a cloud. You have little pillows on your feet, like your feet just got a little massage, like you're a little puppy just sort of prancing What is that? This really went off the... B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash PSTW. You walk like my dog, Luca, happily. So, weirdest story of the day. The Guardian reported that Trump's goon, Paul Manafort, secretly met several times with Julian Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London, uh, including right around when he started running Trump's campaign. This would be a huge deal, given WikiLeaks' role in releasing all the Democratic emails. Manafort's denying it. WikiLeaks is strongly denying it. I have to be honest, that when I read this, it seemed dubious to me because I assumed the Brits and a whole bunch of other intelligence services would know exactly who goes in and out of that building every day and who meets with Assange, uh, and this would have leaked long ago. But you know, it also comes on the heels of Bob Mueller saying Manafort has committed more crimes by continuing to lie to him. There was a report by CNN that said that Mueller has been asking about conversations between Manafort and leaders in Ecuador. So who knows? But what did you make of this report? Well, you know, we obviously don't know, and you're right, that if he did go into that embassy, somebody would absolutely know about it. It's got to be one of the most heavily scrutinized embassy entrances uh, in, in London, if not the world. I mean, it does point to two things. You know, one, just the coziness of Julian Assange in general. I mean, we know at a minimum, you know, Roger Stone was in touch with him for the Trump people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who, even before the Russian intervention in the election, had basically made it his single-minded mission to undermine the United States. Back when the Republican Party used to like to criticize Obama, they basically beat us up for not doing enough uh, to go after Julian Assange. And now, you know, we have the possibility that, you know, they were directly colluding with him to undermine American democracy, their, their Trump campaign. I think it points to the second thing, Tommy, though, which is if you look at Trump's body language, if you look at how Mueller has worked from the outside in, kind of rolling up people like Manafort and Gates uh, and turning his attention to Stone. You know, there's a sense I have that, that Mueller has some information that is 
pretty clear cut. You know, if, if this happened, Mueller would know about it. it, it just Trump's nervousness, uh, his tweets lashing out as we approach the end game of this investigation, the confluence of Manafort, you know, apparently lying uh, to Mueller at the same time that Mueller got Trump's answers. You know, it's pretty obvious that Bob Mueller knows a lot, and Bob Mueller knows things that we don't know, and Bob Mueller knows things that Trump is really freaked out about. And you kind of got to feel like there's a shoe to drop here that is a pretty concrete uh, evidence pointing at collusion. Uh, And everybody's just kind of waiting to see what it is. I just found a shoe. We started recording this at 1 p.m. This just posted at 12.57. Two months before WikiLeaks released stolen emails from the Clinton campaign, Jerome Corsi, right-wing lunatic, sent an email to Roger Stone anticipating the document dump according to draft court papers obtained by NBC News. Quote, Word is friend and embassy plans two more dumps, Corsi wrote on August 2nd, 2016, referring to Julian Assange. One shortly after I'm back, second in October, impact planned to be very damaging. So... That yes. feels like a smoking gun. Well, there, there we go. Like real-time podcasting here. <laughs> uh, I'm some, now sympathetic to the Pod Save America dilemmas of uh, recording yeah, time. seriously. But yeah, no, this is the thing. I mean, this, this is what we've been talking about all along. I mean, whether or not there was foreknowledge and coordination for the timing of those WikiLeaks dumps. And, and here's why this is so important, okay? To take a step back, those emails that were dumped in October sought to make a case about Hillary Clinton's corruption. Remember that? That mm-hmm. was the drip, drip, drip yeah. that the U.S. media followed that you know, seemed to you know, push a narrative that Hillary Clinton and her speeches on Wall Street and, mm-hmm. and some of her dealings in the foundation was corrupt. The Trump campaign's closing argument in the campaign was about Hillary Clinton's corruption. It was entirely similar to, if not coordinated with, those WikiLeaks dumps, right? Mm -hmm. So this is not just a matter of like, oh, maybe we got a heads up. It could have been that the Trump campaign's closing argument was coordinated with the actions of a foreign power in dumping out these emails, that the creation of all the fake news by the Russians was meant to reinforce those themes that was also reinforced by right-wing media like Breitbart. So again, we're not just talking about some crazy coincidence and some grifters like Jerome Corsi and Roger Stone perhaps having a heads up. This could be an indication that the entire Trump campaign strategy was built in part around a coordinated effort with Russian intelligence and WikiLeaks to push certain narratives about Hillary Clinton. That's a gigantic deal. And like, that's, that's not just like, oh, this is a coincidence and this crazy thing happened with Russians. That could suggest that this really was a criminal conspiracy to coordinate with a foreign power to undermine American democracy. Yeah, this is a huge deal. And just because Jerome Corsi and Roger Stone are fringe idiots doesn't mean that they weren't directly involved in this. It doesn't mean yeah. they haven't been involved at the highest levels of power for a very long time, especially Roger Stone. He's a creep, but an operator that's been around forever. Well, they're fringe idiots, but there's fringe idiots running our government every day. Let's Fair not enough. forget that. Fair enough. Seb Gorka used to work there. Never forget. Back to our, uh, our nerdy substance here. The G20 is later this week in Argentina, as we talked about before. The Guardian is reporting that the Argentinians are considering charges against the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, if he attends. So that would be exciting uh, if they arrested the crown prince. But the main event is still the fact that Trump is going to meet with President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the summit. Apparently, in an interview with The Wall Street Journal, he renewed his threat to increase tariffs on Chinese goods from 10 to 25 percent. 
This doesn't feel good, Ben. Like Trump hasn't really left the Chinese much of an off-ramp in these negotiations. No. And, you know, what's clear about this trade war is Trump, you know, went down this road of imposing these tariffs without much of a strategy about where he was trying to go and what he was trying to get here. And the Chinese responded in kind. What we see already is these tariffs having negative impacts on American workers, that GM is closing plants down in the United States in part because of the uncertainty generated by these tariffs. U.S. farmers, particularly soybean farmers, are suffering dramatic losses. The very voters that Trump promised to help, right, these forgotten men and women of America that he talked about who worked in plants or on farms, are the ones suffering in his trade war. And he seems to have no idea what the end game is here. And you know, even if you support getting tougher on China, there's smarter ways of doing that than just slapping tariffs down, which he apparently doesn't even understand. Uh, if you look at his, his interview with the Wall Street Journal, he couldn't tell the difference between a tariff and an interest rate. Oh, good. Which, you know, I'm not an economics graduate student, but I have some <laughs> idea about, you know. So, you know, I think the danger, the tariff story has been a bit underappreciated. The danger this trade war escalates, more Americans suffer. And again, another thing that could help trigger an economic slowdown, inflation, a recession in the U.S., you know, these are very real possibilities. And, and Trump, if anything, appears to be in way over his head here in dealing with the Chinese. Yeah. And we've lost all the stock market gains to date this year. So uh, again, these guys, this is a delicate situation. All right. Last thing. And bear with me here, listener, because we'll take a little bit of a setup. So there's this right-wing creep named Eric Erickson, who is a truly vile political blogger, commenter, who for some reason gets invited on Meet the Press all the time, and it's just appalling. So last night, he tweeted that the U.S. should find and prop up the next generation of Pinochet types in Latin America, referring to Augusto Pinochet, the former Chilean dictator. For some context here, Pinochet's death squads famously threw prisoners out of helicopters, a tactic Erickson said he hoped would be replicated. He literally tweeted that. I raise this not just to dunk on an awful idiot, but because uh, it's the kind of comment that underscores how little the far right uh, and the media has learned from and talks about the ways the U.S. screwed up many of the countries that people in the caravan are trying to escape. So, Ben, I was hoping you could take us through a bit of that history because you worked on this stuff a lot, especially in places like Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Yeah, I mean, again the mentality that the U.S. should go into Latin America and kind of install our own dictators and meddle in Latin American politics did a lot to completely screw up these Central American governments in the 1980s, right? I mean, you remember the Iran-Contra scandal, the Mm -hmm. Contras that we were funding in Central America, right? Uh, Again, helped to lead to violence and civil war and instability, death squads, uh, that we supported in a number of Central American countries. We had to formally apologize for the role of American death squads in Guatemala. You had American-backed death squads in El Salvador. Uh, you had American-backed uh, Contras in Nicaragua. And so the political dysfunction in these countries, much of it roots back to the 1980s when geniuses like Eric Erickson were avidly cheering on the Reagan administration uh, in its anti-communist efforts, uh, its funding for Contras, its funding for right-wing death squads in Central America. You know, this helped breed the violence and instability that has continued for decades and the corruption in those countries uh, and helped fuel migration that has gone on for decades from those countries. Um, so Eric Erickson, if nothing else, offered a convenient reminder 
that, you know, the U.S. Uh, has some, you know, load of responsibility to bear for what was done in these Central American countries and the conditions that continue to prevail that drive people to seek asylum. Yeah. Uh, and remember, people seeking asylum aren't just people trying uh, to come here illegally. They're trying to go through a legal process and to get to our border and say, look, here's the risk I face at home from gang violence uh, or from drug-fueled violence in these countries. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, <laughs> Eric Erickson is basically reminding everybody, yeah, we used to have policies of supporting murderous dictators like Pinochet or murderous death squads in Central America. Uh, l- thanks for the useful history lesson uh, and reminding us, Eric Erickson, that the U.S. played a role in breaking some of these countries from which these uh, migrants are coming. Yeah, and, and part of his point was, for just a fraction of the cost of the wall, we could invest in these dictators, essentially. But they never take that logic and go to the next step, which would actually maybe make sense, which to say assistance programs, development, governance support to improve conditions in the countries that people are leaving so that they would want to stay. Like, I, they're, yeah. I don't understand how they could think that spending on dictators is okay. But spending on making countries a better place, foreign aid, is horrible. It's so illogical. Yeah, it's a hugely important point because, to to put it in context, at the end of the Obama administration, we put together a billion-dollar package in the aftermath of the unaccompanied children coming here from Central America in 2014. A billion-dollar package to improve governance, to improve security. But By the way, we know that this kind of approach can work because we did it over many years in Colombia and to dramatically reduce levels of violence in that country. Mm dramatically increased economic growth. Obviously, that cut down on migration to the U.S. from Colombia, right? It's a tourist destination. Trump, yeah, exactly. The, the Trump administration has cut that funding, of course. Now, to put this in context, Trump wants $5 billion for his wall. So he already wants five times more than we were aiming to spend to reduce the flows of these immigrants to build a wall that's not going to actually get built, that's not going to solve the problem. So it's a lot cheaper, actually, to spend some money to improve governance, to improve security in these countries, than it is to throw money at, at, at a wall that's never going to get built. Um, it's a lot more morally acceptable than tear-gassing people coming to the border. Uh, it's a lot more legally acceptable than trying to deny people the right to pursue political asylum when they get here. It's, you know, common sense suggests that less money spent on prevention of migration is a lot better investment than pouring good money after bad at the border. Yeah, Eric Erickson, man. An actual, like, conservative thought leader who says that his views are informed by his faith, suggesting that we should prop up dictators to throw political prisoners out of helicopters. That is who Meet the Press invites on their shows, and that is who people are listening to in the conservative, I don't know. Wherever that's they where listen. we are. Yeah, Just that's like, their think uh, tank. Tom DeLay and Rick Santorum are going on CNN to tell us about how scientists get paid to, to, yeah. to, to report on climate. Yeah, or, or uh, Daniel Plekka, who works at uh, AEI, a uh, organization funded mostly by Exxon. But, uh, you know, no use of disclosing that to the viewers. Ben, thank you for doing the show. I look forward to you getting back in Los Angeles soon. And next week, we can do this in the studio. Yeah, I'll be in the studio this month. Uh, really excited about it. All right, buddy. See you soon. Travel safe. All right, man. See you. Thanks again for tuning in, Pod Save the World. If you like this episode, please share it and uh, rate and review us in the iTunes store and look forward to talking with you guys next week.